You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 15th of February. And on the program today, we got all the latest info and insights on the Indian Prime Minister's official visit to the UAE. Yeah, in the last 24 hours, it's fair to say Narendra Modi's been pretty busy. He addressed the World Government Summit and also officially inaugurated the UAE's landmark new temple. We actually spoke to the team behind the BAPS Hindu Mandir. And we got analysis from the National Vice President of the Indian People's Forum right here in the UAE. Meanwhile, an e-scooter caused problems on the metro yesterday after it started smoking. Jim Mansfield from Scoot Up Shop and Repair Centre talked us through what could have caused the problem. And that also led us to discuss the future of electric travel and how battery-operated vehicles are going to play a part in the future of travel right here in the Emirates. We discussed that with Leila Faisal from Zoom. Meanwhile, Etihad Rail is teaming up with the Roads and Transport Authority to offer seamless travel around the UAE. Uh, we managed to catch up with the RTA CEO of Tech Support Services to find out how that's going to work. Plus, a medical trial is offering hope for millions of sufferers of arthritis. The lead author joined us to explain how they could prevent people getting arthritis altogether. In the last 24 hours, uh, I think it's fair to say when you look at the news agenda, there's only really been one major story in town. Uh, And in some ways, having the last few days off, I've actually felt like I've missed out. But if you've been following the story over the last uh, 24 hours, you can have no doubts of the importance of the UAE-India relationship. Because, of course, I am talking about the Indian Prime Minister's official visit to the UAE. It's involved speeches, meetings, the signings of investment treaties, And it all culminated yesterday in Narendra Modi inaugurating the UAE's first traditional hand-carved Hindu temple. But just before that, you know, obviously cultural and religious important event, uh, India's Prime Minister addressed the World Government Summit, a bit more prosaic, 20-minute long speech. And in it, he was very complimentary about the UAE, saying Dubai was becoming the world's economic, commercial and technological epicenter and he highlighted Expo 2020 and COP28 as examples of the Emirates story. Now he did speak mostly in Hindi um, but we've managed to get a translation thanks to actually to one of our one of our team members from HIT here um, and in in that speech he was quickly he sort of quickly addressed artificial intelligence which has been very much the theme of this year's World Government Summit. AI Artificial intelligence or cryptocurrency. Developing a global protocol can deal with the challenges posed by artificial intelligence and cryptocurrency. We must listen to the voices of the global south, highlight their priorities and share our resources and capabilities with the countries in need. By following those principles, not only can we resolve the challenges facing our governments, but also strengthen universal brotherhood. It is this very spirit that we promoted during our G20 presidency, We move forward with the motto, one earth, one family, one future. The solutions that emerge here will shape the world's future. 
But he also had one eye on the electorate listening back home, and he highlighted how India had used tech to develop a system of direct benefit transfer as a way of preventing corruption. And of course, with general elections due to be held in India between April and May this year, uh, Mr. Modi very much had one eye on that you know that you know one eye was on the audience in the room at the world government summit here in the uae you know and on that geopolitical relationship and then naturally had one eye very much on the electorate back home and and in consequence uh, mr modi spoke of the importance of faith in governments ai artificial intelligence I believe that people should not feel the absence of a government, but at the same time, nor should there be pressure from the government. In fact, I believe government should interfere as little as possible in the lives of people. It is the government's job to ensure this. Today, the world needs governments that prioritize the ease of living, the ease of justice, the ease of mobility, the ease of innovation and the ease of doing business. We often hear experts say that after the COVID pandemic, people had less faith in their governments. But in India, we have had exactly the opposite experience. In the last few years, the confidence people have in the Indian government has increased. People trust both our intent and commitment because we have a priority to people's aspirations in our governance. We are sensitive to the needs of our country and have focused on fulfilling those needs and dreams. Really interesting to see how he um, sort of caught the eye there, I suppose, or caught the ear. It's described as dog whistle politics. I think he was trying to catch the ear of his electorate there to a certain extent. And in keeping with those needs and dreams, Prime Minister Modi also, uh, while at the World Government Summit, laid a foundation stone for a market for Indian manufacturers and traders in Dubai. Really fascinating project unveiled by DP World. It's going to be called Barat Mar. It's expected to open in the next couple of years, and it's huge. It's going to be at Jafsa, uh, spanning an area of 2.7 million square feet. The idea is to offer a world-class trading platform for Indian manufacturers and exporters to help them access those global markets. And after he'd done that, in a complete sort of whirlwind of activity, he then headed down to Abu Dhabi for the inauguration of that incredible new Hindu temple. Now, I know that quite a lot of people were there. If you were there, please do get in touch. We'd love to hear uh, what it was like, what the atmosphere was like. Uh, give us a message on 4001 or you can WhatsApp us on 04871 One person who was there and who in fact has basically been our de facto correspondent for all things Modi this week. It was Shilpa Nair, who is head of culture uh, for the Alan Modi event that happened earlier this week. She's also national vice president of the Indian People's Forum here in the UAE. Shilpa, thank you so much for joining us once again on the agenda. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm still basking in the glory of the event. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, I have to say, it, it, the entire trip has gone off without a, a visible hitch. Uh, and you have been involved in, in your, you know, the organization of many of those events. Can I get your reaction, I suppose, first to this late, the latest sort of two big hitting moments? Uh, one was the World Government Summit speech that Narendra Modi gave yesterday. How was that received by your community? Uh, see, we have full trust in our prime minister because we have seen him working for the last nine years uh, for the country. And uh, it's it's just uh, unbelievable because he's uh, sort of on a, you know, a roller coaster sort of, you know, because what we have missed all these years in uh, in India, 
uh, on on uh, regards to uh, development we are seeing it on a fast paced mode right now with modi ji so we are actually so excited uh, you know to to know more and more what are the new developments he is bringing up on a day to day basis i should say you know when uh, when i was uh, working with uh, the team uh, to do this especially uh, pm modi's team uh you know uh, so i was on phone with the team at around 1 o'clock in in the midnight and then i just went off to sleep and 4 o'clock early morning i get a call from them asking shilpa ji what are the updates i'm like you know please give me a breathing space <laughs> you know so then they told me something you know they told me that you know shilpa ji we think only 5 years down the line but pm modi thinks 30 years down the line so keep moving you know fast you know so i was like okay you know <laughs> I mean it's so interesting to hear that obviously you are one of uh, Narendra Modi's biggest supporters and I'm trying to think back when a, a sort of British prime minister comes to a country you know even if they don't belong to the political party that I support I think you sort of ad- adopt them nevertheless as a representative for your country don't you and do you think that people who aren't uh, politically affiliated with Narendra Modi are feeling as supportive of this trip as you are I think it's more than politics when Modi ji came into uh, the government I think uh, you know the whole thing has gone beyond politics because it's only nation 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 it's only nation first and that is the ideology of the uh, party as well the political party as well so this has been reflected in every move of his that is the nation first and then only anything else comes you know so when you see uh, somebody supporting they may not be a part of the party or a supporter of the party but mm-hmm. when they see a development for india it's all like you know we're all welcome for that you know any day uh, so <laughs> there was there was this uh, you know there, there was this depression uh, uh, sort of you know like when people would talk about india or the government oh you know nothing is going to happen all this is going to be like this only this was the attitude but now this has changed you know we are actually expecting more from modi because he has given us so much of high expectations now you know do you think uae india relations have ever been stronger it certainly feels like we've entered a new paradigm here it's 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 gone to a totally new uh, level altogether you know because modi ji to start with you know i mean uh, he's been always in praise of sheikh mohammed bin zaid al nahyan because he's he's been telling that you know he's like a brother to me and the way he has uh, you know from day one he has supported him in everything for us indians here you know uh, this has actually given us so much of you know uh, you know uh, happiness that our two countries are coming together in this way and uh, another thing what he mentioned in his speech was that during the covid time uh, there were a lot of indians who were affected and uh, modi ji gave a call to sheikh mohammed and told him that uh you know i will take my people back i'm arranging everything i'm arranging the flights and all that you know for taking them back mm-hmm. and sheikh mohammed told him back that you know they are our people also we will take care of them we will give them the best care and treatment don't worry about anything you know so this is the bond we were looking for and uh, you know even modi ji spoke in arabic <laughs> you know during his speech <laughs> he talked about uh, the friendship between india and uae and shared the wealth and reality uh, you know it was a, it was completely a fantastic uh, speech you know 
every moment and yesterday i was at the hindu uh, baths hindu temple mandir uh, opening as well there as well he told the whole crowd that the only man you need to thank is sheikh mohammed because when we went with two sketches to them to him uh, during the temple opening before that you know saying that okay one a conventional building where just nothing just it's just a building and one the traditional uh, you know uh, temple structure and uh, sheikh mohammed without uh, you know battling a eyelid he said the traditional one you know mm. so all thanks to sheikh mohammed shilpana an absolute pleasure to have you join us on the radio once again thank you so much for being our sort of de facto correspondent for narendra modi's trip it's been a great pleasure chatting to you shilpana the head of culture for the arlan modi event that happened earlier this week also national vice president of the indian peoples forum Hey there, welcome back to the agenda. Really lovely to have you listening. It's just after 10:26. And we are going to be discussing that extraordinary launch overnight of well, inauguration I suppose is the best way of describing it of the Baps Hindu Mandir in Abu Dhabi. It is the UAE's newest Hindu temple. And of course it is a religious monument of incredible significance. You know, a sign of the UAE's and India's close relationship and of course a sign of the UAE's tolerance for all religions. Now, uh, the Baps Hindu Mandir is built on a 27-acre plot. It was donated by the UAE government first announced back in 2018 and it is incredibly special because it's been built using traditional techniques. Let's find out a little bit more about that because fresh from uh, Narendra Modi's inauguration last night, uh, I'm joined now uh, by the fantastic uh, representative from that temple, Vishal Patel. Uh, he's part of the team at the BAPS Hindu Mandir. Vishal, how are you? Good to have you join us on the line. Hi, good morning, Georgia. Fantastic Hello. to be here. And thank you for having me. Well, you were there last night, obviously. What was the atmosphere like? I think to say electric would be an understatement. It was absolutely fantastic. we had a lot of energy all around us we had lots of different community members all around us and there was a lot of color a lot of fanfare and um, a lot of joy in the air i have watched several of the videos late last night and it's i mean it's beautiful i mean absolutely stunning the whole ceremony was stunning you know, with the flowers and the and the sort of the processes by which um, people were sort of effectively blessed but temple itself is extraordinary can you tell me why it's so special why it's so beautiful yeah absolutely so this temple it was actually uh, built under the inspiration of his holiness pramukh swami maharaj and this was his vision which began back in 1997 would you believe so it's been a a long journey to to get to where we are um and it was under the guidance and leadership of Pooja Mohan Swami Maharaj, which we were able to execute on this grand grand temple. Now, what really makes this temple special is it's the first traditional Hindu stone temple in all of the Middle East. This is the largest temple in Western Asia, and what differentiates this temple to uh, other smaller temples that you may have in the region is the way that it's actually been constructed, the the support that it's had from different community members. and more importantly the principles that ha- that they actually stands for right now 
why? Uh, well, actually, you mentioned there it's quite large. How many people can actually worship in it at a time? So, we've we've it's got it's a really large complex which is split into two different locations. So we've got almost a total of twenty seven acres, um, which is split between the temple complex itself and all the different facilities, um, and then about 15 or so acres just for car parking. So there's a significant amount of people that can actually visit. Within the uh, auditorium itself, you can have more than 4,000 people on its own. So we've got a significant capacity to ensure we can take a lot of people in to enjoy all the various aspects of the temple from the restaurants, from the community center, to the actual temple itself inside. And we do have other facilities that we do plan to to bring about at a later phase. Yeah, and of course, this will certainly become a focal point for the Hindi community here in the UAE. I mean, it's almost obvious in some ways, but why do you feel it's important to have a temple of this stature on UAE soil? Yeah, no, so you know, we have you know more than 3.5 million Indians living in the UAE, and UAE really has become a, a model of tolerance and diversity. You know, I'm from, from London. We have a BAPS temple that was built first in 1995. And that temple itself, in the way that it was constructed, you know, we had a lot of different facilities that community members could benefit from. I myself, I was only 12 years old when the temple in London was being constructed. And I started going temple because the temple in London actually had a gym at the back. So the draw for me as a young child was to go somewhere where it was safe to play football and then become part of the community. So when I think about how the temple played a role in my development and and how I was able to be in touch with my culture and my, my beliefs, it's something that I felt would be fantastic, you know, if we had a similar temple over here in the UAE. And so the fact that we've been given this land, we're going to be able to have various community members, including Indians, including Hindus, others that can use the facilities here to really come together and be part of the community and and really celebrate being one in the UAE. Vishal Patel there, Head of Media and Communications at the BAPS Hindu Mandir. Hello there, welcome back to The Agenda. We're coming to you live from the ARN Business Club at Banyan Tree on Blue Waters Island. A great time uh, to get an advertising deal here on Dubai Eye 103.8. If you want to find out more and how you can come down and join us down here, please do check out our website, DubaiEye1038.com. Meanwhile, we've been looking at some of the top news stories that are making headlines. And it turns out that Etihad Rail is teaming up with the Roads and Transport Authority to offer seamless travel around the UAE. Now, um, I spotted this on a sort of press release that was sort of slightly hiding and amongst lots of other announcements from the World Government Summit. But it's really interesting because it's a first step towards the RTA developing ticket booking and fare payment solutions for the new rail service. Now, we're all hugely excited about the new rail service. I'm dreaming of my commute time down to Abu Dhabi being uh, both halved and also made a lot more comfortable on board a nice train. And joining me now to tell us more about how that ticketing and fare service will work is Mohammed Madharab. He is the CEO of Corporate Technology Support Services for the Roads and Transport Authority. Mohammed, thank you so much for joining us on the agenda this morning. How are you? 
I'm doing well and thank you for hosting us today. Always a pleasure to have the RTA on the radio. Now tell me, um, if this NOL card is going to be used for the National Railway, does that mean that users from every single emirate will be able to use it for every single type of, of public transport? Now, there was an MOU signed as part of the uh, uh, World Government Summit um, that states Etihad Rail and Roads and Transport Authority to collaborate and to make NOL as one of the payment methods to be used in terms of paying for the Etihad Rail passenger service tickets. Now, the uh, the reason why NOL is selected, as you know, that uh, the NOL card is becoming very popular and this is it is the only way to pay for the public transportation in Dubai. We have surpassed about uh, 2.5 million daily transactions using NOL card and NOL card has closed the year of 2023 with about 2 billion dirhams collected in terms of uh, fair usage and some other usage outside public transportation as well. So the NOL system is becoming very popular. The NOL is promoting a lot on integrated uh, public transportation. And this is what grabbed the interest of Etihad Rail to come and collaborate with us. Yeah, I have to say, I'm a big fan of the NOL card myself. I, I like you just sort of fill it up and tap it, you know, and anything that's convenient works very well indeed. What type of tech will you be using to ensure that the ticketing is seamless across all forms of public transport in every single emirate? The NOL card, as we stand today, the NOL card supports multiple technologies when it comes to, to payment. It supports the, the stored value uh, on the card as well as the QR code has been activated uh, about two years ago to be used in the public transportation as well. Uh, in terms of our future plans, uh, the RTA last month has announced a major upgrade that will happen to the NOL infrastructure. We will be moving away from a stored value uh, system to an account-based uh, ticketing system. And this will go in line also with our plans with the Tehadri. How will the sort of different fares and, and zones be decided? Are they similar to how you're managing them in Dubai? Um, obviously, it is different uh, and it is to be decided by Etihad Rail in, in due course. Uh, they will be announcing what type of fares and how does it work and so on. Uh, the current situation is we are studying their, uh, the method of ticketing or the ticketing system they will be using. And the way is how can we integrate NOL to become one of the payment methods to issue Etihad Rail tickets? Okay, so this is a this is one of those fishing questions that I like to always throw in at the end. So, so how soon are you expecting NOL for Etihad Rail to be activated? And obviously, sewn into that is a sort of how soon is Etihad Rail going to be up and running? Question. Now I can answer part of it and the other part, maybe I'll leave it for another interview that you should have with the Tehadri. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> in terms of how soon we can activate uh, the current situation and as per the MOU uh, signed, we are exploring the technical details uh, uh, from both systems, the Tehadri ticketing system as well as the NOL ticketing system um, to see how can we collaborate and how can we use the NOL card to issue Tehadri tickets and uh, it will be announced in due course whenever we are ready uh, with the method of integration and uh, how we can make things a lot easier uh, for the passenger and to have 
an integrated journey whenever any passenger uh, uses Etihad Rail to come into Dubai and how it is integrated with the rest of public transportation offering offered by RTA. Mohammed Madharab, thank you very much indeed for your time on the agenda this morning. Uh, CEO of Corporate Technology Support Services for the Roads and Transport Authority. Hey there, welcome back to the programme live from the ARN Business Club at Banyan Tree on Blue Waters Island. It's getting very busy down here with lots of people looking to find out more about advertising on the ARN network. If you're one of those people, feel free to sign up on our website, dubaii1038.com, and come down and pay us a visit. But meanwhile, let's just take a quick look at a local story that's been making serious headlines in the last 24 hours because services on Dubai's metro's red line suffered delays yesterday you might have heard about it it was after smoke from a passenger's e-scooter caused disruptions basically the fumes started emerging at the on passive station and that meant basically the rta laid on buses for passengers and they did have services back to normal within about 45 minutes but it got us thinking about why e-scooters might suddenly start to smoke sort of a little bit disconcerting I think Uh, and of course they're such an important tool for everyone going those last few miles or those last few kilometers on their morning and evening commute that we want to make sure they're safe. Joining me now to discuss e-scooter repair and maintenance is Jim Mansfield the owner of scootup.ae they are a scooter reseller and repair shop near Al Sakal Avenue he's done us the favor of coming down so he's probably going to be sold advertising later on in his trip but Jim thanks (laughs) have you already (laughs) it's good to have you here thank you very much indeed can you give me a sense of, of, of why this might have happened why this scooter might have started smoking of course, uh, scooters, when they come in contact with water or dirt or dust, can, um, can easily cause disruption with the power source. And the <clears throat> depending on the quality of the battery and how it's insulated, then it could cause sparks, which can lead to And depending on how much the scooter costs and like the quality of how it was built, it could determine if it's like, like a phone. Like a phone comes with waterproofing and a cheaper phone may not and like phones have also been known to cause fires from from the lithium ion batteries so it's quite concerning that isn't it that that it could smoke and then you know burst yeah. into flames it's, because that's something you do not want happening on a train yeah i think i think it's quite rare but we had the the weather and the water and water is a big factor we've seen many scooters come into the shop that were submerged in water We've had to air them out and try to repair them because the, when the water gets into the system, it could take. You should probably set it aside for a couple of days, just to dry out. Can it dry out? Well, you know, will, are some scooters waterproof? Can they survive the type of flooding and water that we've seen recently? Yeah, some scooters, just like with the phone, they come with like a. It's called an IP rating. So those ratings will tell you how is it water resistant? Can it be submerged in water? And we we sell many many models and like. Depending on price, like some are more insulated, they put rubber coating on the wires, the batteries have power management systems. The other thing that causes a problem is if you overcharge the battery. On a cheaper scooter, like it'll keep charging and it can heat up the battery where other scooters have a power management system that will manage and turn off the power connection. It's a huge market now, isn't yeah. it? You know, really saturated and you can pretty much get a scooter at almost every price point, an yeah. electric scooter at every price point. I mean, 
you know you've got no particular affiliation to any brand I don't yeah. I don't think so so how where would you place yourself as you know if you were going to go out and buy one where where is it where's the sort of sweet spot in the market where it's not too expensive but you know you're getting quality yeah we're selling scooters anywhere from about 1200 dirhams to 10,000 dirhams and that usually relates to the performance and the battery life and we're selling mostly sort of well-known brands so we know we can trust the build quality for instance, like the low-end scooters might be Ninebots, made by Segway, which is a well-known brand. We sell Inokim, Ducatis. Uh, Ducatis? Uh, yeah, well, Ducati, really? yeah, Ducati has, there's, there's an Italian company that licenses like the Ducati, uh, Lamborghini brands. So they're, they're, they're also well-made, and that way you can sort of, you have a little more trust that these problems where they still can happen if you get, get them wet or get them dirty. But if, if it's well-maintained, this is unlikely to happen. How often should you be getting your scooter serviced? Because, I mean, if you're using it every single day, yeah. it's, it's getting a fair old amount of wear and tear, isn't I it? Every few months. If, if, you're, if you're riding, say, 10 kilometers a day, you should probably every three months have it checked out, make sure the wires and everything are working correctly. And just, you know, yourself, just clean it. If it gets dirty, if there's dust, keep the dust off the components because that can lead to, to problems. I'm guessing that you're a reasonably new business based here in Dubai, but I imagine you're, you're growing at speed. What is the market like for you right now? Uh, it's very busy. Everyone's riding scooters. Everyone has a lot of repair issues. Uh, we've got a big repair shop, so we've seen lots of people bringing them in. Uh, you know, it starts with punctures, flat tires. That's a common problem. Uh, batteries going dead. So we see, we see a lot of repairs. Also, people come in looking for new scooters. We sell some unique brands that are sort of new new to the market. That's interesting to people. Oh, well, I'm interested about that because like everything in Dubai, it starts with just sort of the fundamentals you want to get from A to B. But then you've got your VVIPs who want a kind of fancy scooter. Yeah. Has that already, is that market already started, the sort of luxury end of the market? Oh, definitely. There's scooters that come with like full suspension, <laughs> hydraulic brakes, uh, even with four wheels, we have one we're about to start selling. It's four wheels. It'll sell for about it's about six thousand dollars, like twenty thousand dirhams or so. But it's a four wheel scooter can go in the desert, and so there's, there's a wide range of scooters that. Also, some are very big and heavy. They go up to like we have thirty five, fifty kilos. Are there scooters. limits on how fast they're allowed to go? Are you required to put speed limits on so that they stay legal? The scooters come with preset limits, which you can change. And Dubai has rules on certain roads and certain paths. The speed limit is usually 20, and it goes up to 30. If you're on private roads or out on your own property, you can ride as fast as you want. Some of the scooters will go up to 60, 70, even 100 kilometers an hour. Goodness me. So just like, I mean, in many ways, just like a, a, a scooter, you know, Piaggio-type yeah, scooter. Yeah, like a scooter or a, a small motorbike. motorcycle. Yeah. yeah. Where do you see the market going? Is it something you're excited about? Yeah, I think with traffic and getting around the city, it's, it's increasingly becoming an easy way to get from point A to point B. Also, Dubai is adding more lanes and easier access to, to get to these places. Like we're in Al Sarkal area. They're putting in like a whole big new scooter path that'll, because like the connectivity to like, you know, with a fire on passive metro, it's very difficult for even for our workers to get yeah. from Alistair Call to the metro. It's like a 30 minute walk right now. 
That is awesome. I have to say, it's a very exciting market. I feel very enthusiastic about it because scooters are clean, they're green, you can charge them you know, very simply at home. Yeah. And they are that awesome solution for people who don't have an, a way to get that last kilometer, that last two kilometers. Yeah, it makes, makes cities smaller because you can get yeah. around quickly because you know, walking a kilometer, two kilometers, it takes a long time, but if you're on a scooter, you can close that distance very quickly and see more of a city or an area. Do you know, I used to have a Piaggio scooter when I lived in London. And, and although, you know, it's a slightly bigger affair, I think the feel of it is the same. It's, it's different to driving in a car. Yeah. Uh, you feel like you're still in the neighborhood. You still feel like you're within the community, mm-hmm. even though you're traveling at slightly faster speed. There's a real sort of feeling of freedom about it. It's a, re- it's a really nice feeling, actually. Yeah, it, it's nice to get around those close distances where you know, walking 15, 20 minutes is a long time. Yeah. Just getting somewhere quickly, going to a restaurant or to the grocery store. It's good stuff. Well, I yeah. wish you all the best um, with your business. I was so thrilled to find out about it as a consequence of doing this topic. So, Jim Mansfield, thank you very much for taking the time to join us down here. Thanks for uh, me. The owner of ScootUp.ae. They are a scooter reseller and repair shop based near Al Sakal Avenue. Definitely worth checking them out. We're going to discuss e-scooters and safety on the program today. That is after services on Dubai Metro's red line suffered delays yesterday. I don't know if you were on the Metro yesterday, um, but basically a passenger's e-scooter started smoking very disconcerting. All happened at the on-passive station. Authorities closed that bit of the metro and buses were laid on instead. Um, and services were back to normal within 45 minutes. But it really got us thinking about why e-scooters might suddenly start to smoke and ultimately the safety of electrical vehicles. I'm delighted to say that joining me now to discuss that topic is Leila Faisal, who is co-founder and COO of electrical vehicle company Zoom Vault. Leila, how are you doing? Thanks for joining me on the line. Pleasure to be here, George. Thank you. Yeah, so oddly enough, we've just been speaking to someone else in your industry, uh, Jim Mansfield, who runs the company, uh, another electrical uh, scooter company, ultimately, called ScootUp.ae. And he said that um, electric batteries can be affected by rain. Now, I drive an electrical car. Do I need to be worried? Well, yes. So, um, uh, Georgia, thank you for the question. And, uh, uh, you know, the safety of EVs is a global concern now. And this incident highlights the critical importance of safety in EVs as a topic which is timely and essential as the UAE and the world move towards a sustainable future. Um, I would also like to say that while incidents like these are concerning, they shouldn't overshadow the benefits of electric vehicles. And these events are a call to action for businesses, consumers, and regulators to ensure a safe and sustainable transition to electric transportation. So uh, while events like these are rare, but serve as important reminders for strict safety standards in EVs. Absolutely. I mean, a business owner in electric vehicle... Well, I was going to say, absolutely, especially when it comes to the e-scooters, because so many people are are using them. I couldn't help but notice that we've had an incident of this type just shortly after we had some very inclement weather indeed. Do you think that it's possible that this e-scooter had been affected by the rain? So, uh, Georgia, there are multiple uh, factors that could affect the batteries or or the overall performance of the electric scooters. Um, In the 
the Korean uh, advanced technology plays a pivotal role in establishing rigorous safety standards for electric vehicles on our roads. Uh, there are GSO standards for EVs which are specific to the GCP region because this region has unique climatic environmental conditions such as extreme temperatures, sandy terrains, um, cloud seeding, which can affect the vehicle performance and safety. So the GSO standards are tailored to address these specific regional challenges and safeguarding user um, um, and the environment by guaranteeing high quality products and reducing the likelihood of such incidents. Um, having said that, unfortunately, some unregulated products are still flushed in the market and at very cheap prices, which is a big concern. It's interesting there that you mentioned, of course, heat and dust, because, of course, while we've had rain over the last week, that is certainly not the norm. And I imagine it is that that heat and dust that causes the biggest problems with e-scooters. But I would say that whenever I do interviews with people about electric vehicles, they point out that these electric motors have far fewer moving parts than traditional petrol or diesel engines and as a consequence in many ways are less likely to go wrong. Is that correct? Yeah, so one factor to consider when choosing an electric scooter or, or an EV is the battery type and in both electric cars and motorcycles the choice of battery composition is a trade-off between energy density which provides you the range uh, the power which provides you the performance or speed their safety lifespan and their cost so um, innovations continue in battery technology aiming to provide uh, improvements for these aspects uh, but for instance the lsp batteries are known for their safety and longevity uh, might be a great choice for regular city commuting. Uh, on the other hand, the NMC batteries offering a good balance of energy density and power could be preferred for longer range, like it could be a good choice for last mile deliveries. That is so interesting to hear about how the different batteries can uh, have different use cases. Leila Faisal, always fantastic to get someone as knowledgeable as you on the radio. Thank you very much. agenda. We've also been keeping our attention on the top international stories making headlines and we're going to turn our attention now to a medical trial that's offering hope for millions of sufferers of rheumatoid arthritis because it turns out that an existing drug for the chronic disease could actually slow or even stop its progression. Now that is according to researchers from King's College London and in fact I'm joined by the lead author of that study now. Professor Andrew Cope is the head of the Centre for Rheumatic Diseases at King's College London in the United Kingdom and joins me on the, na- on the line now. Professor Cope, thank you very much indeed for your time this morning. Tell me, what have you discovered this drug can do? Hello and there, it's do great we still to be on you? Dubai I 103.8. Oh, thank you very much indeed, sir. Thank you. Tell me what you've, you've discovered because this is an existing drug, but you're using it in a slightly different way, aren't you? That's correct. So this drug is called Abatacept, and it's licensed for the treatment of people with established rheumatoid arthritis. We think that one of the ways it works is by blocking harmful immune reactions of the kind that we see in people with established inflammatory arthritis. And we can detect this in the the blood uh, by measuring an antibody called anti-CCP. It's widely available. Now, what we did in this study was to recruit a large number of people not with established rheumatoid arthritis, but uh, who were deemed to be at high risk 
of developing the disease. And this was based on a couple of things. One was joint pain, so particularly the hands and the wrists, maybe the feet, but no joint swelling. So there's no clinical arthritis in the combination with this antibody in the blood. So if you have the antibody in the blood and the joint symptoms, you're about 50% chance risk of progressing to rheumatoid arthritis within one to two years. So this is the high risk cohort that we enrolled in the study. And the question we were asking was if those getting the active drug, a batacept, uh, progression was reduced compared to those taking placebo. And that's in fact exactly what we saw. We saw a very striking reduction in progression rates, something order of, order of about 80%. But I think, Georgia, what really surprised us was when we stopped the treatment after one year and followed people up, there was still a population of people receiving the active drug who remained rheumatoid arthritis free. So to date, we think this is as near uh, to cure as we can get. And in fact, best way to cure is to prevent. And I think that's what this uh, study is telling us about. Hugely encouraging research. How do you take the drug and how often do you need it? And is it expensive? So the drug is in a, in a broad class of uh, medications called biological agents. So these are antibodies or antibody constructs. So you can't take them by mouth. They are injected. So these are subcutaneous injections, either into the thigh or in the, in the belly. And these are done weekly. Uh, and we've been using these drugs for, for many, many years. Batacet we've been using for over a decade. So we're very familiar with it. And our clinical teams are very good at training individuals to do those injections at home. So they rock up to clinic, they pick up their injection packs, take them home and inject every week. Now, these biologics aren't cheap, but they're becoming much cheaper because of things called biosimilars. So these are drugs that are very like the original, but are much, much cheaper. And we're talking probably somewhere in the region of about 10,000 uh, sterling a year. The thing about these prevention studies is that we may be able to treat only for a shorter period of time, and that brings down the cost. And Georgia, in the UK, there are about half a million people with rheumatoid, and it costs the National Health Service somewhere in the order of £5 billion a year. So you could imagine that to be able to prevent the disease from occurring in the first place uh, is going to represent a substantial cost saving down the line. I've got about 30 seconds left with you, Professor Cope. How, how soon can we see this being used as a treatment or is more research needed first? It's a great question. This really will come down to how soon we can persuade uh, with our colleagues, the regulators, that for a drug that's licensed for established disease could be used for what effectively is a disease that's already started, we just, we just can't detect it. So I'm, I think we're talking somewhere around a year, maybe a little bit more. Professor Andrew Cope there, head of the Centre of Rheumatic Diseases at King's College London in the United Kingdom. Thank you very much indeed for your time, sir. Very encouraging research there. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.